you very much, everyone, for coming. I see some very familiar faces, some very loyal uh, attendees, uh, Professor Ann Wee, um, you know, uh, my friend, Kwok Yen Woon. I mean, they come to almost every um, IPS uh, uh, forum. Um, at the IPS forum on the elected presidency that we held in mid-August, just as the presidential campaign was beginning, I quoted what Heraclitus said more than 2,500 years ago. Although the law of reason is common, the majority of people live as though they had an understanding or wisdom of their own. He was referring to the law of reason in general. But the observation, I think, applies also to the law as such, in particular to the Constitution. In this case, the Constitution of the Republic of Singapore. We have not had as much disagreement about any provision in the Constitution as we have had about the provisions relating to the elected president. Indeed, the presidential election was most unusual. It turned not on the policies or proposals or credentials of the candidates. It turned instead on what the elected president should, can, or might do, his powers, his constitutional position. We had an election to fill a constitutional office that turned on what the Constitution said about that office. It was, you might say, a most theoretical election. As you'll see later, when you hear the results of our survey, people had remarkably eclectic views of the office. How did we get to this situation? How did an office that was devised to stand above politics become enmeshed in politics? Do we need to rethink the institution? What I'm about to say has little to do with constitutional law. You will hear from the constitutional experts later. Nor do I suppose that my take will resemble what the politicians might say. You have heard from them already. I can only speak from my own understanding of history. The law of reason is common, Heraclitus said, but the majority of people live as though they had an understanding of their own. I don't believe there is such a thing as private wisdom. But one cannot arrive at a common understanding except through individual understandings. This, that common understanding that we seek has to arise from dialogue. We might begin the story at any time in independent Singapore's history. But let me start with the war, World War II. The men who were chief architects of modern Singapore's financial and monetary structure were formed in the crucible of that war. Lee Kuan Yew, Dr. Goh Keng Sui, Hun Sin Sen, and Lim Kim Sang. These men never forgot the chief lesson of that war, of any war, the utter fragility of life, its contingency. More practically, they never forgot that those who had gold reserves survived the war better than those who didn't because the paper currency was worthless. After the war, Lee and Go went on to establish the PAP in 1954 together with a few other like-minded anti-colonialists. They won power in 1959 when the PAP was still a broad coalition of the, of the left. The non-communist left almost lost power to the radical left 
who hived off from the PAP to form the Barisan Socialists in 1961. They survived that challenge, but only to plunge into the cauldron that was merger with Malaya. Let me pick up the story again from 1967, two years after separation. Two events occurred that year. The first was the split of the common currency. Many of you may not remember this, but Singapore and Malaya had one common currency. You might call it the second separation. You might uh, call it the first political separation in 1965. Mr. Lee had actually wanted to carry on with the common currency. Dr. Goh was skeptical, but Mr. Lee thought that for both political and economic reasons, Singapore and Malaysia should be linked by a common currency. Businessmen on both sides of the causeway had wanted to maintain the link too. We almost arrived at an agreement with the Malaysians to continue the common currency arrangements that had existed since the days of the Straits Settlement. Negotiations failed at the last minute because the Malaysians wanted to hold the currency, the reserves backing the currency, including Singapore's share, in Bank Negara, their central bank, and weren't prepared to give Singapore ironclad guarantees of our ownership of our own reserves. So that meant it produced brick a second time because of the reserves. Bear that in mind, Singapore's leaders, Lee, Goh, and Lim Kim San, who was finance minister at that time, were prepared to break the common currency arrangements that had existed since 1897, go it alone because they wanted ironclad guarantees of Singapore's control of its own reserves. The second formative event in 1967, also in 1967, was the devaluation of the British pound. At that time, Singapore, like Malaysia, was part of the sterling area. We had a currency board system, which meant the Sing dollar was backed 100% by sterling in this case. That meant every Sing dollar issued was backed by a fixed amount of sterling. That's how the currency board arrangement works. Being part of the sterling area meant also that you had to keep all your reserves in sterling, for that was what backed your currency, the note issue. Well, Singapore didn't keep all the reserves in sterling. You have heard the story of how Dr. Goh sent Yam Bong Dao on a secret mission to buy gold from South Africa. It was cloak and dagger stuff, very exciting. The upshot was Dr. Goh managed to diversify out of sterling before the British government devalued the currency in November 1967. He guessed the pound was going to fall and he moved preemptively to ring fence at least a portion of our reserves. The reserves weren't much then, compared to now that is. But they were all that Singapore had. Sterling agreement or no sterling agreement, despite the presence of British forces, in Singapore, or the promise of substantial aid as British forces withdrew east from Suez, east, east of West, despite the fact that Harold Wilson, the British Prime Minister, then had helped Singapore, had helped save Singapore's leaders from being imprisoned by Kuala Lumpur just two years earlier when Singapore was part of Malaya, Malaysia. Despite all this, Dr. Goh had no qualms moving aggressively to protect the reserves. Not to put too fine a point on it, he was quite prepared to screw the British if he had to in the process. 
Incidentally, gold was at around US $35 an ounce when Dr. Go sent Niam on his secret mission. It is now roughly US $1,775 when I checked about two days ago. That's an increase of 4,885%. Dr. Go's gold is still in, in the vault somewhere in the MAS. The British, of course, soon found out what he had done, and a holy row ensued. The British Chancellor of the Exchequer then, Roy Jenkins, and Dr. Go, by then Finance Minister again, had a furious and heated exchange of letters. Jenkins was no intellectual slouch. He became Chancellor of Oxford University later and a well-known biographer of Churchill, among others. And of course, Dr. Goh, in my view, an undoubted genius, was no intellectual slouch either. Their correspondence, a little of which I've read, makes for astounding reading. In one letter, Dr. Goh propounded a novel thesis. There were two kinds of reserves, he said. One was monetary reserves. That was what you needed to back your currency. Those reserves, he assured the chancellor, were in sterling. Then there was non-monetary reserves, reserves in excess of what you needed to back your currency. That the Singapore government was free to invest as it saw fit to secure the country's future. So Dr. Goh argued. It was a novel, startling, utterly unconventional thesis. There was nothing in the literature in monetary economics or development economics to justify any such division of reserves into monetary and non-monetary reserves. Dr. Wu thought it up. Why? Because of the crest of lived experience. I think because of the terrifying experience of merger, because of the war because his generation felt in their bones that life was fragile. Most of you here won't remember this, but those my age, around my age and older, would. Even in 1960, I remember 15 years after the war had ended, older Singaporeans would bite coins to make sure they were real. I remember as a child, uh, recess time, we went to the duck shop, Lucian cost 10 cents, uh, five cents chincha. You gave the chap the coins and he would bite them before pocketing them. Dr. Goh's generation, my parents' generation, your grandparents' generation, they bit coins. They knew there could be counterfeit, counterfeit currency. That possibility is unimaginable today. Never take anything on trust. Always verify and then verify again and again. Here you have one clue as to why the elected presidency was created. The next stage in this story is 1981, 30 years ago. Again, two events occurred that year. One was the founding of GIC, the Government of Singapore Investment Corporation. Non-monetary reserves, the novel notion that Dr. Goh had thought up 14 years earlier, was given concrete form in GIC. What had happened was that in 1980, Mr. Lee and Dr. Goh decided that the Monetary Authority of Singapore, our central bank, had too much reserves, far in excess of what it needed to protect the Sing dollar in case it was attacked by speculators. 
They felt that NAS was not investing the excess reserves in long-term investment instruments and thus not achieving as good a return as it might have. And so they established GIC. It is now among the world's largest sovereign wealth funds or SWFs. Other countries had established SWFs before Singapore did. But Singapore was the first among non-oil, non-commodity trading countries to do so. Singapore's oil, Mr. Lee has said, is its reserves. That's our oil in the ground. Those reserves had to be carefully husbanded. That was the constant theme among our first-generation leaders. They weren't rich in 1967 when they decided to break the common currency arrangements with Malaysia or divest out of sterling. They husbanded the reserves even when Singapore was a relatively poor country. They did so because they saw the reserves as providing the country with strategic depth. They did so, I emphasize again, because of the experience of merger and the war. The other event that occurred in 1981 was the ruling party's lock on parliament was broken by Mr. J.B. Jayaratnam when he won a by-election for Anson. For the first time in more than 15 years, an opposition member was elected to parliament. In 1984, Mr. Lee announced that a constitutional amendment to protect the national reserves was in the offing. In 1988, the first white paper on the EP was presented to parliament, calling for an elected president with powers to block a government wishing to spend the reserves and also to protect the integrity of the civil service. A second white paper presented to Parliament in 1990 proposed some additional powers for the elected president um, to authorize investigations by the CPIB even if the Prime Minister refused to give uh, grant consent and to countermand ministerial orders under the Internal Security Act and the maintenance of religious harmony in some circumstances. As important as are these other powers, the elected president's chief role is undoubtedly to protect the reserves. Protecting the integrity of public service appointments was in the first instance linked to protecting the reserves. An irresponsible government, it was felt, bent on spendthrift policies could degrade the civil service and raid the reserves. Mr. Lee and his old guard colleagues decided on the elected president because they feared a populist government wasting the reserves. Never take anything on trust always verify, and then verify again and again. That applies to the popular will too. Just as the upper chamber in some countries, like the House of Lords in Britain or the Senate in the US, acts as a check and popularly elected lower houses, America's founding fathers expressly conceived of the Senate originally as playing that role vis-a-vis um, -vis the House of Representatives. Just so, the elected president in Singapore was conceived as a check on parliament in certain very specific areas. In all other respects, the President, the Article 21 of the, one of the Constitution says, shall act in accordance with the advice of the Cabinet or of a Minister acting under the general authority of the Cabinet. The provisions for the elected President have restricted the current government too. You will remember the disagreements between the government and the first elected President, Mr. Ong Teng Cheong, over whether the net investment interest on the reserves should be locked up as past reserves or be available to the current government. 
the government and Mr. Kong agreed on a 50-50 formula in the third white paper, I think, which appeared in 1999. More recently, when the government wished to spend more of the earnings from the reserves, it had to seek a constitutional amendment to allow it to draw down half of the net investment return, which is a broader measure than net investment income. And the president had to concur with the constitutional amendment. The drawdown now amounts to almost 20% um, of annual government spending. The elected president, as it was conceived from the beginning, was to function as a check on the popularly elected government in certain very specific areas. And beyond that, the executive authority was to rest with the prime minister and the cabinet. Especially with regard to the reserves, the EP was to be placed beyond politics, not subject to the push and pull of public opinion. But to give it the authority to stand firm against a profligate but popularly elected government, Mr. Lee and his colleagues decided that the president, too, had to be elected. I have argued elsewhere, together with Mr. Ho Kwan Ping, that it is not possible to have an election and not expect politics to intrude. In the history of the universe, there has never been a non-political election. It's simply not possible. Were our founding leaders wrong then in conceiving of a president who stood above politics? Do we need to rethink the office? What will be the consequence of continued disagreement over what the Constitution says are the respective roles of the president, the cabinet, and parliament? Although the law of reason is common, the majority of people live as though they had an understanding or wisdom of their own. I believe we must always strive to arrive at a common understanding of the law. We can't do so without dialogue. And the dialogue has to begin by listening to what the people are saying, which is, in this case, as conveyed by the IPS survey on the 2011 presidential election. Uh, may I invite Dr. Gillian Koh, who is a master briefer, to tell us what the survey says. Thank you very much.